Well, good morning, everybody. Go ahead and have a seat. My name is Kim, and I'm so glad you're here today. I have a question for you. Just shout out the answer, okay? What is the most commonly known verse in the Bible? That's right. What Ron shared with us earlier, and like he said, we're going to be looking at that today. And you know, there's a problem with it, isn't there? It's that it's so incredibly familiar, right? That we might just picture in our minds Tim Tebow with it on his face, you know? It just might be that we just see in our minds a, a cardboard sign at a ball game. We might even try to see if we can still quote it because maybe we were asked to memorize that verse as a kid. For God so loved the world that he gave. You know, that verse actually suffers from the Pledge of Allegiance factor, right? What does it really mean? So today, we're going to unpack it in a historical way. We're going to take a look. So right now, you might want to get out your outline. It looks like this, and a pen, and or maybe your Bible, and turn to John 3. All the verses, though, are going to be right there on your outline. And I think as we unpack this historically, we take a look at what was going on around this verse, that it's going to open up to you in brand new ways that you've never thought of it before. Where this guy in John chapter 3 comes saying to Jesus, essentially, just who are you? So this is how it starts. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, let's hold it right there. In order to understand John 3.16, we have to know something of the setup. So let me tell you some things about Nicodemus. You might want to jot this down. First of all, we could say that Nicodemus was committed Like it said, he was part of a select group called the Pharisees. And many of us have heard of the Pharisees, and we kind of give them a bad rap. But before we get too hard on these guys, thinking they're bad guys, let me just say that there's probably no one in this room that could live up to the high standards that they did. You see, in order to be a Pharisee, Nicodemus had to make a solemn vow before God and three witnesses that he would keep all the Ten Commandments, every day for his entire life. He was committed. But we could also say that Nicodemus was conscientious. See, the life of a Pharisee was all about rules. For example, one of the commandments is to honor the Sabbath, right? Not to do any work on the Sabbath. So they had this book called the Mishnah, where they studied 24 chapters that were all about making sure that they were keeping the Sabbath. And then they had the Talmud, where they would study 128 pages that were written about the 24 chapters that were in the Mishnah about that one commandment to keep the Sabbath. See, I'm talking rigid, meticulous interpretations of the law. And that was the whole life of a Pharisee. They were moral superheroes. For instance, they weren't allowed to work on the Sabbath, right? Well, what if they, uh, well, see, part of not working is never making mortar or clay on the Sabbath because that would constitute work. So if they needed to take, get this, spit on the Sabbath, they had to be careful where it landed. I'm not kidding. See, if it landed on a rock, they were okay. But if it landed in the dirt, well, then they were in danger of sinning because they might be trying to make clay. (laughs) See, my son, I I used to tell him to stop spitting. But in this case, I would tell him to go practice your aim. (laughs) Nicodemus could also be said to be a man of character. He was respected. He was one of just 70 people 
called the Sanhedrin, who ran the religious affairs of the entire nation of Israel. Over every Jew. In verse 10, Jesus even calls him the teacher of Israel. See, Nicodemus was at the top socially, intellectually, morally, spiritually, but something was missing. He'd been keeping all the rules, but on the inside, something was drying up. So this is something else that I really respect about Nicodemus. He was a questioner. A questioner is a person who feels or expresses doubt about something. And I think Nicodemus may be feeling some doubt over what he had built his life on. Now Jesus, who understands better than anyone else what's in a person's heart, could see it. And I guess that there could be somebody here this morning who could feel a little bit like Nicodemus. I mean, maybe you're a success. Maybe even in the Christian world. Maybe in the church you're serving. Or maybe in your world. But on the inside, there's something missing. And see, this is where Nicodemus, as a questioner, is a role model for us. This is what we can learn. Don't let your status keep you from your search. Imagine the pressure on this highly trained, educated Nicodemus not to go talk to this new itinerant preacher. Sometimes people know that their life is out of control, but they have so much status in the eyes of the world or in the eyes of their friends that the idea of, say, going to a marriage conference if their marriage is hurting or going to talk to a pastor or a counselor about a problem just feels too embarrassing. But if you want to get what you're seeking, be like Nicodemus, be a little humble. I like the story of a girl that was applying for college her heart sank when she read on the application, are you a leader? Well, she was honest, and she wrote no, and she sent it in expecting the worst. But then she was surprised to get a letter back that said, dear applicant, reviewing our applications this year reveals that our college is going to have 1,352 new leaders. We're accepting you because we feel it is imperative that they have at least one follower. Nicodemus was the leader of leaders, but he was willing to become a follower of Jesus. And it all started with asking some questions. Asking questions is important, isn't it? I have a young friend here in our church family who's 11. Her name is Olivia, and she's great at asking questions. Every Sunday after our gathering, she comes and brings to me her questions written on the inside of her envelope makes a great stationery where she asks deep questions like, why did Satan turn against God? Or what's up with people who don't even want to know God? I mean, great questions. And sometimes she just shares her art. And I want to show you this one. I hope you can see it. It says this, never underestimate the power of a woman. Isn't that great for Mother's Day? Look at that elephant. Whoa, wouldn't want to get in her way. Never underestimate Olivia, I would say. Never underestimate anybody who asks searching questions. And so here's Nicodemus. He's starting a dialogue with Jesus. And he says, it says in verse 2, This man came to Jesus by night and said, you know, many people read that and they think to themselves, Hey, he's the first Nick at night. No, they don't think that. 
But many people do think that he came at night for this reason. It was a secret. He, he didn't want to be seen with Jesus. Well, it could be. Or maybe he just wanted some in, uninterrupted time with Jesus. You know, when we're really seeking and asking questions, we need to be willing to set aside some uninterrupted time with the Lord. To open our Bible to really do some digging and finding out who he is. So Nicodemus says to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, what does Jesus say? His answers might blow your mind because many people think that Jesus came to us humans just to say, try harder. You can do it. Just work harder to keep those Ten Commandments. Just kind of like a first century Tony Robbins, you know? You can do it. Well, that was the Pharisees' message. But Jesus upends that whole mindset. He uses three metaphors. He talks about a new birth, about the wind, and about a serpent on a pole to explain why he came to us. So jot these down. First, Jesus challenges, challenges questioners to be born again. Be born again. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, circle those words, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again. You know, in some translations it reads this way, born from above. You might want to write that in the margin. Sounds like Jesus changed the subject to me. Notice Jesus didn't respond to Nicodemus' compliments with, Hey, thanks for the vote of confidence. It means a lot coming from you. I mean, some say that Jesus' answer is really more like, cut the political posturing. I'm not really impressed with your religion, your success, or the fact that all the important, smart people agree with you. Now, we know that Jesus wasn't impressed with Nicodemus' credentials, but, you know, I have a hard time thinking that he used that sassy tone with him. I think Jesus changed the subject out of empathy. I think he's looking at this man with compassion about the heavy, cumbersome load that Nicodemus is carrying. I think he wants to see him set free. So he doesn't waste any time with frivolous, back-slapping admiration stuff. Now, we might think that Nicodemus was the last person who needed to hear what Jesus is saying about being born again. But Jesus thought it was the first thing Nicodemus needed to hear. And notice it wasn't even, Nicodemus, you're doing pretty good. Uh, Let me just share a few things you need to work on. See, instead of Nicodemus, you you need to start all over. It was, you need to start from the beginning. Nothing that you've done counts. You need to become a baby. See, Jesus didn't come to make an improved you. He came to make a new you. And what do you think now when you hear the words born again? I mean, we hear those words all over the place, don't we? Well, what does it mean? Most people think that born again is an emotional, deeply cathartic religious awakening. Others think that it's a tight moral or even a political platform. And many people don't want to be associated with the words born again. I found this humbling. 
A poll was taken that revealed that 70% of Americans would not want a born-again Christian as a neighbor. Ouch! I lowered property values. Another statistic said that half of all Americans claim to be born again. Well, I put that together, and that means that most born-again people don't want themselves as neighbors. <laughs> born again, Nicodemus thinks that Jesus' cheese has fallen off his cracker. In verse 4, it says, Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born Nicodemus is saying, you mean to get to heaven, I have to climb back into my mom. First of all, that's gross. And second, she worked so hard to get me out. (laughs) And I feel like there's all kinds of psychological issues with that. Now look at how Jesus explains. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now would you circle the words kingdom of God This is the second time Jesus has brought it up. And we don't generally think in terms of royalty or kingdoms, do we, in our country? But recently, Ron and I got to take a fantastic trip to France. It was romantic. It was fun. What a gift. You know, we visited Versailles. That was the royal palace of King Louis XIV. And right across the front, it said, the glories of France. It was opulence all around. This hall of mirrors was a symbol of his power, because mirrors were very rare. There was art by the finest artists of the day. There was a garden that made me think we were in a movie. And we saw statues that portrayed Louis young and handsome and in total conquest over his enemies. It was all about Louis. There was just one thing missing for me as I toured this grandiose 300-year-old mansion. He was nowhere to be seen. Where was Louis? As extravagant as it was, the king was missing. See, his was a temporary kingdom. His kingdom wasn't the kind that lasts. Ultimately, it won't even be a kingdom that even matters. The Bible says that God brings rulers to nothing. Now, Jesus talked a lot about the kingdom of God. And seeing all that helped me to picture kingdom talk. See, a king is the one whose will is carried out to the nth degree. I got to see the attempts of a self-serving king who had a big ego, but whose power was brief for those that it benefited and those who suffered under it. Protestants really suffered. But Jesus is challenging Nicodemus to see and to enter the kingdom of God. This kingdom has no end. And the subjects of this kingdom are the objects of the king's love. Many people hear kingdom of God and they say, oh, you're just talking about heaven, right? Well, yeah, Jesus wants us to look forward with hope to that mind-blowing eternal home he has for us. But his kingdom means so much more than that. See, when we're born again, Jesus says, we get to live in the realm of his domain today. When Jesus tells us we need a rebirth, he's not talking about one time, say a sinner's prayer and, oh good, now I've got my ticket to heaven kind of thing. He's talking about a new start into real living. 
Look at how Jesus says it. Verse 6. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. Jesus is saying, hey, when flesh gives birth, what do you get? More flesh. But this new birth, being born from above, is what starts you into this realm of everyday spiritual life and relationship with the one and only eternal king. We sang about him earlier. Did you catch it? Oh, worship the king all glorious above. We sang whose robe is the light, whose canopy space. Here are some of the lyrics of that great old hymn that we didn't sing. Thy bountiful care, what tongue can recite? It breathes in the air, it shines in the light. I think we did sing those words, actually. Can you picture living life with this king? whose robe is the light, whose care for you is so complete that it breathes in the air, that it shines in the light. See, Paul says in the New Testament that in God we live and move and exist. Do you know he wasn't speaking metaphorically or abstractly? He was talking literally. We live and move in a spiritual reality. So what difference does this make? Well, seeing the opulence of that royal palace at Versailles helped me to visualize it. I am the daughter of the king. So one middle of the night, I was wide awake while Ron was asleep. Okay, picture this. See, when you fly across the ocean, your body clock gets all weirded out, right? But also, moms... I had gotten a text from my teenage daughter back home. And she was sharing a need that I wasn't there to meet. Now, it wasn't a biggie, but the fact was I wasn't there to take care of it. So, you know, I was concerned. I was tempted to go into worry. Are there any moms here who ever worry? Be honest. Okay, yeah. Anne Voskamp, I love how she says it. A mother's labor and delivery never ends. You have to keep remembering to breathe. Isn't that good? Here I was stewing in this little hotel room, and I was looking for a place where I could sit and read and pray without bothering Ron. So you know what I did? I settled on top of a pillow in the bathtub. It's quite comfy, actually. And I sat down in that bathtub, and I was studying these verses from John 3 about being born from above. And look at what I read. To be born from above means to be interactively joined with a dynamic, unseen system of divine reality. That was from Dallas Willard. He uses big words, but what it said to me was, Hey, I may be sitting in a bathtub in France, but I have a privilege. I belong to the king. It doesn't matter where I am. My prayers have power in his divine system of reality. These words, interactive and dynamic, woke me up and turned on my will to interact with God instead of worry. His canopy is space, so it didn't matter. The distance from France to Grass Valley was nothing. And it was the most memorable part of the trip for me. I can't help it, I'm a mom. Yeah, we saw all the sights. We saw Paris. We saw the Eiffel Tower at night. This was more memorable than any old art museum. This was more memorable than my Oklahoma-born husband trying to speak French. (laughs) Parley-voo English? Mercy go poop. 
I mean, Bo Coop. <laughs> we had fun with that, didn't we, sweetie? I loved it. But you know, this was, <laughs> this was more memorable than all that. I got to meet with the king. He welcomed me. I prayed, you, my God, my king, surround her. From this place in your kingdom, I give my cares to you. And I'm trusting your sovereign, able hand to take care of my daughter. Now, how did it turn out? Well, of course, Jordan's needs were met. But more miraculous than that was right away, I was given serenity and peace and sleep. You see, that's why we're talking about interacting with Jesus being our source of hope. Being born again means I can rest. So how do we get there? Nicodemus is still scratching his head. So look at the next fill-in. Jesus challenges this questioner to let go. Let go. In verse 8, Jesus goes, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus compares the work of Holy Spirit to a, in, in, the, in the, a person's life to the wind. How is the Holy Spirit like the wind? Well, there's two ways I can see. First is, it's real, but you can't see it. Think about the wind. Can you see the wind? You might say, well, yeah, look at those, tree, those leaves falling. Well, no, that's not the wind. That's the effect of the wind. Sometimes the wind is refreshing. Sometimes it's terrifying. And that's the other way that the spirit is like the wind. It's powerful, but you can't control it. A lot of people, especially religious people, are about control. And Jesus knew this about Nicodemus. And he's saying, hey, Nick, you need to let go of control. You need to give it to the spirit. I have a friend who used to be controlled by fear, especially fear of what others would think. And she learned from her family how to use codependency and, and relationships and substances and alcohol to maintain a sense of control. She felt like she had to control everything. She was always maneuvering, always watching her back. And finally, she hit bottom. And she decided to let go and to be born again into this new life. Now, she used to have nightmares, but now... She sleeps through the night even when her kids are having a crisis. I mean, she's forgiven the people who have hurt her. She is one of the most fun-to-be-around, serene people that I know because she's chosen to let go and give the Spirit the reins of control in her life. When you look at my friend, you wouldn't say, oh, there's the Holy Spirit, like a halo over her head. But what you would see is the evidence of the Holy Spirit in her. What he's done in her is radical because she let go and trusted him. And then there's Matthew. He's a 28-year-old who struggles with alcoholism. And he's been in and out of rehab. He's been living on the streets for some time. And last week, he was beat up again. And this time, his shoes were stolen. So he borrowed a phone and he called home, crying to his mom. Now, she is a strong uh, woman of faith. And she had told him before, call me when you're ready. And what, what she meant by that was when you're ready to be done with that life. 
See, she used to swoop in and try to rescue Matthew and take control and fix things. But after a lot of tears and prayer, she learned that the only way to help her son was to let go and let God. This mom had to make the hard choice of refusing to let her son live with her, even if it meant him living on the streets, because she knew only God could help him. So now she could tell he was drinking again, and she said to him, you're not ready. And he said, Mom, what am I going to do? All I have is my T-shirt and my pants. I don't even have any shoes. And instead of her saying, well, let me buy you some shoes, she said, let's pray. Let's ask God. Maybe he'll give you some shoes. So they prayed, and they hung up. And a half hour later, a man sat down on a bench next to Matthew and started to talk to him. And Matthew told the man how he'd been beat up and had no shoes. And right then and there, that man took his own shoes off his feet and gave them to Matthew. Now, this got Matthew's attention. And he called his mom again and told her, Mom, I'm ready. God did this for me. And now he's in rehab again, off the street. You can help us pray for Matthew. And I thought about it. How did that happen? And it was because this mom chose to trust God and let go instead of frantically trying to control everything. Now, if you looked at that mom, you wouldn't say, there's the Holy Spirit. But you would sure see the wisdom and the peace of the Holy Spirit over her, the effect of him. See, that's what happens in the life of someone who's willing to let go. But everything in Nicodemus's life had been about control. So he says to Jesus, how can these things be? So Jesus answers him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Now listen, did you know that God is okay with your questions, even the hard ones? But right here, Jesus turns things around. I mean, Nicodemus had been the one asking questions, but now Jesus is asking the real question because he wants to reveal our hearts. He's going, Nicodemus, don't you see it? Come deeper with me into the kingdom. This concept isn't new, Nicodemus. See, Jesus knew what Nicodemus had spent his whole life studying. And now he's going, don't you remember how back in Ezekiel that Ezekiel prophesied that there would be a time when the Holy Spirit would utterly transform the stone-dead hearts of Israel into hearts of flesh. Now is it, Nicodemus. I'm calling those dry bones to life. I've come to call you from death to life, Nicodemus, if you will just take your eyes off yourself and your performance And look up. You see, that's the one more thing that Jesus challenges questioners to do. Would you jot that down? Look up. Look up. Truly, truly, Jesus goes, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Jesus says, look, Nicodemus, are you in a place to contradict what I tell you about these things? It was like we talked about last week when Jesus was in the temple turning tables over. This is a question of Jesus' authority. He says in verse 12, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, 
How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is bold here. He's saying, there's only one with the answers, Nicodemus. It's the one who has come down from heaven to you. That's me. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, look up. Decide who has authority in your life. Now, Jesus knew that Nicodemus knew the Hebrew Bible back and forth. And that he would have been thinking, where in my Bible is this? So Jesus is saying, it's there, Nicodemus. And we're talking about authority. So let's talk about your hero, Moses. Now, this story about Moses is, can be found in Numbers chapter 21. Verse 14 says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Listen, hundreds of years before Christ, the Israelites were in the desert dying from snake bites, poisonous snake bites. And God tells Moses, make a brass symbol of a serpent and put it on a pole and lift it high. And anyone who looks at that in faith will be healed. God says, I am not going to require a sacrifice. I'm not going to judge if they're worthy. If they will just look on that serpent raised up in faith, if they look at that serpent, they will be healed of their snake bite. So Moses does it. And by the way, that healing symbol of a serpent on a pole is where we get our symbol today about healing for physicians. Now, I want to ask you, do you see the parallel to Jesus? I mean, the Bible says that Jesus Christ was lifted up. God put himself on a pole, so to speak, when Jesus went to the cross. He put our sin on himself. And we're all dying of a snake bite. The poison inside our souls is killing us. And Jesus gets lifted high. And says, if you will just look up at me, instead of looking at your own efforts, you will be healed. And if that isn't clear enough for Nicodemus or for you and me, then Jesus goes on to quote what we've talked about earlier. The verse more quoted than any other. And tell me now, if this isn't even more clear, now that we know who Jesus is talking to, and that he's referring to Moses lifting up that serpent on a pole, He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Would you circle whoever believes? Remember, he's saying this to Nicodemus, the man of a thousand rules, the man who's trying to do it right. Now listen, mom, if there was ever an arena where I wanted to do it all right, It's right here in the area of motherhood. I mean, I wanted to nail it. I didn't care how hard it was going to be. I mean, we all knew it was going to be hard mothering, right? I mean, no price was too high. If it was going to be easy, it wouldn't have started out with something called labor, right? I wanted to nail it. I wanted to do it right. Now, is there any other mom in the room who can relate to that desire? You wanted to do it right. This week, I saw a picture on Facebook 
uh, of my, my friend Lindsay's son, Dylan. Now, he was turning two. And moms, when you look at this picture, I want to ask you, doesn't it raise up memories of how much we pour into these little people? Look at this. Can you see him? He's on a Batman mobile. He's got a sippy cup, little Ernie in his hands. Look at those chubby toes. It just makes me think how we pour into them, you know, love. We, we protect them. We love them. We, we encourage them. We clap for them. We socialize them. We cry over them. We pray over them. Now, let me just ask you, moms, as I look back, do you think that I nailed it, that I did it right all the time? No. I mean, no matter where you are in your journey, you may just be starting out or you may be way down the road of mothering. We don't do it all perfectly. But I have an adult son now, and I, I love talking to him about the past. Uh, we love to laugh about the good times. I mean, we like to laugh about the, the, the snake in the freezer for our science project. This week, he was telling me he remembered the owl pellets that we dissected. That's a euphemism for owl poop. Did you know that you can purchase owl poop so you can sort through it for bones? But there have been moments as I remember things, and I look in my son's face, that I wasn't laughing. Because I remember my failure. I looked into Ryan's eyes, and I feel the weight of that. I've told him I'm sorry. Because I know that my hang-ups, my broken places were hurtful to him. You know, when your brokenness um, gets passed on to your, to your people... That hurts. Those are hard conversations. And maybe you're here and you can relate. Maybe you're not a mom, but you're thinking right now about some way that you blew it in a relationship. And if we focus on those failures, we can start to feel guilt. We can start to go into the if only thinking. If only I had done it different. We can get busy trying to make up for it. We might be trying to get to a place of peace by just, you know, trying to do better. But listen, that's what Nicodemus had tried, and it doesn't work. I love this quote. It says, peace isn't a place to arrive at, but a person to abide in. Peace doesn't come from what I do. Peace is in who I know. Peace is found in Jesus, and that's why he challenges us to look up. He says, I am the same redeemer for your kids that I have been for you. I'm the same powerful God for that person you feel that you've hurt. I'm the same one who uses all things for their good. So let go and look up at me. Let's look at John 3.16 again. It says, For whoever believes in me shall not perish, but have everlasting, ongoing, abundant life. You know, a human being can perish, not just once, not just at the time of death, but they can go through an eternity separated from God. And Jesus is trying to convey his intense desire that that not happen for you. But there's also another kind of perishing, and that's when you spend your energy trying to make up for your regrets, trying to outperform your past. Jesus says, don't do it. Believe me. So there's a question for every one of us to ask ourselves this morning. Have I believed in Jesus? 
Have you looked up to Jesus like that? Knowing that he is your only hope for the poison in your own soul? Have you believed what he says? Have you ever encountered Jesus that way? Well, there's evidence that Nicodemus did. There's there's evidence that his life was changed. In the 19th chapter, John tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, that Nicodemus stepped forward with another man to ask for the body of Jesus, to prepare it for burial. Now, this was a grotesque, horrible job, usually saddled on a lowly servant. It's very bold for Nicodemus to do this because the leader of this movement has been executed and most of his followers have gone into hiding. But now Nicodemus publicly, no, not under cover of darkness, stands up for Jesus. He associates himself with the one who had given him life. Nicodemus believed the greatest promise ever, that whoever believes in him will have life will have full life, abundant life, forever life, forgiven life, meaningful life, energized life. This is the greatest verse in the Bible, and it doesn't end with the word death. I would love to pray with you right now so you can respond to this offer of life. Can you pray with me right now? God, I thank you for this account, for this conversation that we needed to listen in on. I thank you for this great statement in Scripture that you do not look to any of us to perform, to get to you, but that you came down to us. I thank you for being so clear about that. And I pray for anyone in the room, Lord, who has been trying like Nicodemus to just do it all right in order to somehow please you. I pray that this morning they would have courage to let go and look up at you on the cross, that they would allow what you've done for them to be the gift that you've intended to cover them. If that's you right now, I I just want to invite you to say to the Lord, I am going to give up. I'm going to let go, and I'm going to trust you, Jesus. I'm going to believe what you've said, that you paid the price for me. And Lord, I want to pray for anyone in the room or maybe somebody watching online who has been stuck in regret over some past failure. If that's you right now, would you just say to the Lord, God, I have really tried to make up for my error, and and I'm just going to give it to you now, and I'm going to believe what you said, that you're big and that you've got this thing. I'm going to let go and look up at you. And I just thank you, Lord, on behalf of all of us today that you invite us into this kingdom living where we get to interact with you every day of life, that nothing is too small or too large to bring to our king, that your care for us is so massive. And we thank you and we praise you. We pray all these things in the great name of our Savior and friend, Jesus. Amen.